Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Cree Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm excited to welcome Victor Laval. We are going to talk about his comics work, Destroyer, as well as a number of his novels and, and just great writing that he's done. On Comic Book Herald's Cree Annotators, I like to talk to some of my favorite creators in the business about works, graphic novels, comics, series that they have produced, and talk about some of the insights and inspirations that led to their creation. So, Victor, thank you so much for joining today. Let's kick off by, it's been a few years since uh, Destroyer came out via Boom Studios with, with art by Dietrich Smith and Joanna LaFuente. And I imagine one of the most frequent questions when the work came out was, why tell this story as a comic instead of a novel, right? It's, it's a bit of a switch up for you. Now that some time has passed, I'm curious, are you happy with that decision? Um, or do you miss what Destroyer might have been as a novel, like what that might have afforded you as a storyteller? Uh, there's nothing else but a comic book uh, that I would have wanted it to be, at least in this phase. I mean, maybe it could also someday be a movie, but I'm just saying uh, uh, it was perfect for it to be a comic. And yeah. uh, I knew that because like uh, one of the hardest parts about writing prose um, is how many pa- like how many pages I would have to take to just describe the first issue. I mean, the first image of the first issue of Frankenstein's monster sitting on an iceberg. Mm-hmm. I might end up taking five pages for that. Whereas then Dietrich Smith just sent me over uh, his uh, illustration and I was like, oh yeah, that's perfect. And that's better than what I would have done. And it was just a reminder of like why I fell in love with comics in the first place is uh, it can be, it can do almost anything. Now, did you actually write out uh, like the novel version or, or in some instances, like what this, some of these um, descriptions might've looked like, or you're just imagining how long that might've taken? Oh, no, I'm imagining. But even gotcha. the, my scripts, uh, like I, I have to say, that I took some inspiration from when I remember when I bought the the version of From Hell where you could see Alan Moore's scripts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could see how in, incredibly uh, <laughs> yeah, those <are> long <laughs> those panel descriptions were. So none of them were that long. But particularly in the first, I would say, two issues or so, before I like also learned to like uh, trust Dietrich a great deal and to realize that uh um uh you know how how this partnership works best uh my things were like i would say a half a page description per panel mm-hmm. to kind of give a sense of mood as well as what should be in the panel and then as the issues went on the scripts got shorter and tighter because i knew like by issue four when i when a character called the bride shows up i could just say World War One tank, and, and then and you know Dietrich's got it at that point. He's going to yeah. knock it out, and then yeah. he does better than I would have even dreamed. That's interesting. So, do you think because it's a, a collaboration, which is obviously different than that sort of insular approach when you're a novelist? Um, do you think as you got to know the artist, you're saying you know your your script changed? Do you think the work would have changed at all if you had more of that foundation to begin with, um, or do you think essentially it would have been? The same story and the same visuals, it would have just maybe taken less work to get there as you guys kind of built that relationship. Well, I mean, I guess I guess uh, uh, writers, comic book writers who have a who have a lot more experience, maybe they know how to sort of hit the ground running. So like certainly now I'm working on a new, another project uh, with Boom and I'm feeling like the scripts are a lot uh, more uh, uh, condensed or concise is, is a way to put it. Yeah. Uh, because I know that the artist who's going to start working on that is 
uh, a pro, you know. Uh, but it was, you know, I had to learn somewhere, and I felt like I was lucky to learn with an artist like Dietrich, who was so good, um, you know, that he he moved. Essentially, he was so experienced, he helped me sort of level up quickly. Awesome, awesome. All right, so you just teased it, and this was definitely gonna be a question I wanted to ask. What what can you tell us about the upcoming Boom series, or is that what you can tell us that that, that is an <laughs> <Yeah>. upcoming series? <laughs> I mean, it's literally. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I've only I've written the script for the first two issues i think yeah um and i guess what i would say is kind of like environmental horror apocalypse mm. sort of thing but no um it's a weirdly a kind of a, a sister book to destroyer okay. on a spiritual level on like a elemental level um and yeah uh and it's about a kid who's got to save the world okay very cool do, do you have a broad timeline when people could be looking for that uh, 2021 i mean that's pretty broad late sure. like mid to late 2021 is i think when the plan is for the first issue to drop and my hope is i'll have written all it's a six issue story again uh and like uh, i'll have written the whole thing hopefully before the first one comes out cool cool yeah. i'm looking forward to that that's awesome Thanks. all Thanks. right yeah for sure so destroyer was uh, not the first time I read your work. We actually had a we have a a reading club we do with comics, and within that reading club, they started a book club this year, okay. and which is like comically too much reading. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the books that was recommended was The Ballad of Black Tom. So that was my that was my introduction to your work, um, not too long ago, and uh, that it blew me away because we read the Lovecraft first, right, and then obviously seeing you wrestle with. Oh, um, wow you know lovecraft's history and like just basically like you know his his racism but then yeah. now recontextualizing that in this modern work i was i was deeply deeply immersed and engaged in in that book i quite loved it um and then i saw you at a comic and i was super excited <laughs> i was like oh this is perfect <laughs> i'd love to get you on to talk uh, destroyer i think is similarly effective although certainly in a different way when you were creating this book how and why did you decide to effectively create a sequel to frankenstein um, kind of rather than maybe modernize or adapt, you know, your own version of like a modern Frankenstein. Cause this is Frankenstein's monster. Like that's where we begin the book, right? The, the right. monster's here. It's in this world. It is the universe of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, right. I, I'm curious what, what drew you to that approach? Well, uh, number one, I mean, there's a, a million, uh, retellings of the Frankenstein story, right? Mm -hmm. Of the novel. Uh, some of them great, some of them not great. But there's just so many of them, you know, um, that I sort of felt like uh, retelling it didn't seem as exciting to me as continuing it. Because I had um, I also teach. And so I had uh, this semester before I began the comic, I'd reread to teach the novel. I'd read the reread the novel so I could teach it. Hmm. And I was reminded of how open ended an ending it was because the Frankenstein's uh, monster, the creation is still alive at the end and right. essentially runs off and says i'm now that uh, victor frankenstein has died i'm going to kill myself but i just decided like he didn't uh he decided instead to live among the creatures of the uh, of the world since human beings had been such a disappointment right and uh that was just sort of floating in my head and then i also knew from the book there's one family member in the frankenstein the extended frankenstein family a brother who survives the the creation's revenge. Mm -hmm. He's the only one not killed. And so I just decided, well, 
maybe he came to the U.S. because Europe clearly had proven pretty bad for his family. Um, yeah, they, they have so, a tough go. <laughs> yeah, so I thought like maybe he just figures I'll go to this new place, the U.S., and I'll just set up shop there, and then he has a couple generations pass, and then we'll get to this great granddaughter or great great granddaughter, mm-hmm. and that'll be the last living Frankenstein. And it just all started to sort of gel for me, and became an easier way to imagine also then putting in the real world contemporary politics yeah. that I did want to wrestle with um, that I didn't necessarily think would fit with a simple retelling. Right, right. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. That That is interesting because I, I do think it's it's very effective too to set it in this world because it not only does it mean we have the original Frankenstein monster you know operating and around which sets up some pretty interesting parallels i think between because here like i think the so the monster is just full of rage it's just all revenge i think the the kind of eloquence and and isolation and just the feelings of kind of that woe is me attitude the the monster has in the novel like that's all gone by the time we get here (laughs) you know it's just it's just the destroyer um at this point because it there's a couple instances early too where like it has the chance to be the hero you know it has the chance to like oh it only hurts the bad guys you know Mm -hmm. like it's it's the frankenstein punisher uh but no it's it is equally destructive across the board yes so but then you know you set that up in contrast to dr joe uh baker who here is the uh what's the word um the it follows in the lineage of frankenstein the the doctor right and she's actually the one who is kind of on this path towards potentially destruction yes. herself i i think that all works extremely well i think one of the coolest things that you, not necessarily cool but one of the most striking elements of your work is like you draw these parallels between older work in the literary canon and and this modern lens of how racial prejudice and social injustice reshapes the narrative uh, it hits a lot harder and with the weight that i think mary shelley's frankenstein doesn't in 2020 frankly I'm curious, how do you determine like where in the literary canon to respond to um, or to utilize as inspiration? Uh, or, or in another way, like what comes first, like the story or like the response track to something that is that is in your head? Well, I guess I would say, I mean, certainly first, I only use or respond to um, work that uh, I love, yeah. right? That has meant the world to me, whether that's uh, like Frankenstein or H.P. Lovecraft, right? Even though I'm critical of Lovecraft, I still love him. Mm-hmm. It's, that it's still foundational, and so it has to be. Like I could never imagine just taking a book. <clears throat> excuse me. I could never imagine just taking a book because it was problematic, whatever that might mean, and then just using it if I did if it wasn't something I grew up on or something I loved. So that was that's the first part. But also, like you know, uh, I can't remember the writer who said it, but uh, um, they said like all books are just made up of previous books do you know Mm. all books are just made up of the books that the author read and it's almost always fed into that work and i think you can see the same thing in comics like one creator comes on and you can see the ways they're trying to either continue the the work of the previous one or they're trying to just crap all over the the previous person and redo (laughs) all the mistakes right and so like that's a part of like any kind of artistic history is that constant kind of conversation back and forth um but in my case yeah it was really like i love these things and therefore i want to use them yeah what is it what is it about horror in particular so like in your novels you know definitely this you, you are 
I guess I don't know what the, this might be like a bad <laughs> labeling, but like a very literary horror novelist. I mean, I would say, you know, like it is it is very um, like poetic and, and strong writing with a horror backdrop, you know, in response to a lot of kind of genre and and ideas that people are somewhat familiar with. Right. And then you yes. recontextualize them to make them interesting um, and, and to say something new. What is it about horror that excites you uh, quite in this way? Because I'll admit, like, I'm, you know, we're, we're in October now. It's Halloween season. It's <laughs> yes. never it's never been a thing that I, I don't know, like something about unsettling horror just really gets to me in yeah. a way. But, but you can sense in your work that, like, this is the stuff that excites you. Like, this is entertainment. And obviously Absolutely. you're not alone in that. Um, what, what is it about the genre that you find so appealing? Well, I think the great thing about horror um, is... Like, number one, it's really the most malleable of genres because horror can show up in some version in a Western, in a superhero story, in a, <clears throat> a romance. Uh, like, it's not, a, it's not a single kind of story. It's a mood within a story. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I like is that it's so malleable. But the second thing I really like is that, um, uh, like, I don't know, speaking for my own life, I grew up uh, a family of... Uh, we have a fair bit of mental illness in the family. And as a result, on a day-to-day -day basis, I didn't always know what kind of place I was walking into. Hmm. One day, it was a place where everybody, everything is cool. Everyone's loving dinners on the table. Let's eat dinner and watch a show. And then the next day, genuinely, in front of my apartment building, the cops could be there because someone was getting... Or the cops, the cops and an ambulance could be there because someone was being taken away. Mm. And on the third day, I could walk in and the entire apartment is, it looks like a tornado hit it, right? Yeah. And so and so for me, the idea that there's a type of storytelling where you say one day life was normal and then the next day it all went to hell felt like normal life to me. Yeah. And so uh, I really love horror for the way that it, it goes above it goes beyond normal experience in an effort to explain the really dramatic moments of life's experiences sure you know? yeah so like uh you know i if i tried to explain what it was like to have a schizophrenic sibling again like the descriptions of uh, in the comic i could spend five pages still not get it across and bore the hell out of you hmm. or i could say a 10 year old boy was walking home and a werewolf just came out of an alley and just tore open his throat. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't be literally what happened, but that could be how it felt. Right. That metaphor of, of the yes. suddenness, right? Yeah. Yes. And then, and so I love horror because uh, I'm, I, I feel so deeply that idea of like, you just don't know day to day. And horror lets me say like, oh, I'm not crazy. Like the world can change. The world can be monstrous. Uh, and that weirdly is comforting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. No, I can totally see that. Well, and I think like that metaphor definitely is is part of what makes your work, I think, so resonant, um, especially as we're looking at, you know, the social issues and like racial prejudice that comes up in these in these stories. Like there's undeniable yeah. weight to Destroyer, for example, because there's all this history integrated into it. And and I think it will it'll continue to transcend, transcend kind of the test of time. Um, because, like, for example, so Akai, the, the young boy who is mm -hmm. shot and killed, right, just for, you know, he, he is 
there's a phone call that suggests he is maybe walking and a dangerous person in the neighborhood. Yes. And uh, he's a 12-year-old boy with a baseball bat coming home yes. from Little League, right? And he's, he's shot and killed by police. And it's it's horrifying. It's tragic. And it's deeply, deeply emotional. But they, his name is a, a reference to Akai Gurley, a man shot and killed by police in NYC. Yes. Um, and I, I read in an interview where you explained that his Frankenstein cyborg armor is reflective of all the places Michael Brown was shot by police in Ferguson, which is something that I would not have picked up on had I not read that but then you see that and it's like I, on one hand it's it's kind of it's just like tragic and, and emotional in the sense that you know you have to it, you know really like get your head around the fact that these things are happening all around us right but yes. it's also like a very effective easter egg um I'm interested how do you as a creator sort of thread the balance between nodding to these horrific instances uh without necessarily like I don't know, without concealing them too much, right? Like you right. want it to be a focus, uh, but then there's, you know, like the Michael Brown thing is almost kind of hidden um, unless you're, you know, again, like reading the the interviews. Like what Absolutely. is what is that balance? Well, I mean, I will say like uh, as much as I do uh, want to sort of wrestle with, talk through social issues in the work, I never, ever want anything I create to just feel purely like medicine. You know, I, I, I don't want anything where you say like, boy, you know, uh, like we talk with our kids. So we have two kids, my wife and I have two kids. And one of the things that can be sometimes a little exasperating is like, uh, so let's in particular say we have two black children. Mm -hmm. We want them to enjoy, we want to read kids books to them. And, uh, sometimes we just want a kid's book where the kid is just a detective, and they're just solving crimes. And maybe there's some hints of social issues in there. Maybe they're class issues, race issues, uh, sexuality, whatever, right? But um, but we don't want it, the, the story to necessarily be called, Dear Kids, Racism is Bad, right? Because right? you just sort of say, like, there's nothing interesting about that story. And even our kids, as young as when they were, like, four or five, we would come in with the, like, earnest completely straightforward books and they would be like i don't want to hear that <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean they're like yeah. i want to hear the story about the clown who rides a bike through the clouds yeah they're, they're four and five right totally. yes and in that same way i felt like um those aspects of the story particularly like the aspect of like the the bullet patterns of michael brown's shooting matching akai's cybernetic uh, attachments that's a thing it mattered to me it was a thing in interviews i could share but I never wanted that. To, I never wanted to sort of step out of the story so much yeah. that I would have somebody stop and lecture about that, you know, because I just feel like it's already pretty clear what we're talking about. And those things would just kind of derail the other parts, which is I want it to be cool that Frankenstein's monster is there and that this kid has nanotech a nanotech arm and that they're going to fight each other and that there's a guy trapped in armor. I want all that fun stuff. Too, yeah, right. You yeah. Know? Uh, and so, it, you know, my hope is that at least much of the time I found a way to balance both uh, so that you get some and the other, right? Uh, yeah. Sometimes this, sometimes that. Um, because I do feel like that's one of the things that allows those more... Uh, political or purposeful messages to even get through anyone's sort of natural desire to not think about them. Right. Right. No, it's, and it's, it's extremely well integrated here where it Thank is, you. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Like it's so, it's so clearly, you know, the through line that drives, you know, it drives Dr. Baker's actions, right. The fact that she even needs to 
rebuild her son. You know, yes. like the, the emotional crux of this is based on police violence. There's no getting around it. But then, as you say, it's still a Frankenstein sequel. And yes. there's there's yes. still a monster and there's still action. And and there's the bride, which is this, you know, very cool um, Iron Man-esque, you know, Hulkbuster yes. armor, you know, like yes. and there's this all these entertaining things. Um, I'm interested. The, the character of, of Dr. Baker, I think, is, is fascinating in this book. She's the last living heir of the Frankenstein bloodline. And she's kind of throughout these six issues. She's shown on like this progressive scale towards, I guess, what would be viewed in the comics like you know, landscape as super villainy. Yes. Um, we begin with her as an aggrieved mother who lost her son to to murder, obviously. And by issue six, she's advocating for tearing the whole country down yes. over a vision of, of a burning White House. Um, I was definitely struck reading this again, heading into this, that like her goals are probably more vocally supported than they've ever been. I yeah, think with where we're right. at. You know? That's right. Because I, I think when I read it initially, it was like, that's obviously too far whereas now it's like <laughs> a lot of people are like yeah like it, even burn if it's it not, down. Yeah. yeah totally it's like burn it down start over um yes. or even if it's not that it's like okay defund right That's you know right. like there's there's versions that are closer to it that i think are much more appealing um so yeah she is the frankenstein of our story yes right um but it's it's weird because it's like i empathize with her too strongly to see her as the classical mad scientist. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's kind of impossible not to. And, and I think you did the same thing with um, the quote-unquote monster here, who's just the boy. There's yes. there's no monster in him, right? There's there's not even that turn towards revenge and hate for, for not being loved by a creator because it's actually the exact opposite. How intentional was that to, like, invert the relationship between creator and quote-unquote monster from the, from the novel? Well, I absolutely... Um... Uh, like so first Mary Shelley's novel her original novel is one of the other reasons why I wanted to do a continuation versus in the Bow to Black Tom and thanks for the kind words about that mm -hmm. um, uh, where that was more of a criticism of and a wrestling with the original Frankenstein novel is an incredibly political novel mm -hmm. right uh, uh, like people uh, don't always realize like even that um, the, the Frankenstein's monster is a vegan in the book it only eats berries and leaves mm, yeah. uh, because mary shelley and her mother were vegan uh you know like that long ago um and that the sort of idea of questioning scientific hubris at the time was a really radical sort of idea especially since she was absolutely a believer in science and a believer in the sort of forward progression of uh the intellectual sort of pursuits, but she also foresaw the dangers of yeah. it and the dangers yeah. of going so far. And that's why, I mean, and she wrote it at 18. It's just astounding. <laughs> uh, I mean, I just yeah. have to give her her credit. Um, but so, uh, so in the case of mine, um, I knew the other reason I needed to flip things was because if I'm going to make it Dr. Baker, if I'm going to make it uh, a woman, a black woman scientist, and that her son was, has been killed, I couldn't possibly see her motivation solely as hubris. Yeah. Right. Um, and so once I realized that that had to change, then I realized, okay, her relationship then with Akai will change and that will make differences throughout, but that will echo out so that the story again, doesn't re read like a retread of Frankenstein, but becomes a sort of uh, like the a flipped, the mirror image, like the flipped version of it on some level. But she does still, again, like I don't, I didn't want her to be some like angelic presence. She does still, even though I totally, um, I wanted the reader to understand why she goes 
as far as she does, I did want the reader to also be like, man, that's pretty far. Yeah, right. You know, for it to be both things, like to say it's like this particular uh, scientist or mad scientist, I just want you to understand why she would have those points of view and that you're absolutely right. Like when I wrote it even and when it came out, the narratives about like systematic prejudice and the ways that limits and also destroys the lives of certain people over others was certainly was something I was a part of, but it was not a popular conversation in this country, I don't think, even at that point. And it certainly wasn't so popular that you also had then an equally um, uh, strong counter argument, which is, you know, the sort of like all lives matter, uh, uh, protect the blue, like there's no systematic prejudice in this country you should shut up and and feel like oh the fact that, that that's even coming out that these two warring sites are coming out to my mind is progress because before it was all hmm. subtext yeah know, it now, is fascinating reading that last issue where it, it's clearly written in the wake of um arguments about i think civil war monuments like yes. like about the statue specifically yes. And not, not that that's not still topical, because it is, and it allows you a, a really great line, I think, in issue six, which is, and I'm paraphrasing somebody to the effect of, like, we've been in the shadow of the Civil War ever since, or, like, we've yes. never escaped it, essentially, uh, which is super relevant. But it is amazing how how much the conversation has progressed. It, I don't even, it, it's for the better in the sense that it's happening, I think, and, and awareness and education is expanding. But certainly the two sides of it, like you're saying, are often angrier than and more divided than ever right so that part of it is is still frightening i suppose well, i mean i agree but i think like the 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 american i think maybe it's the worldwide but i'm an american so i can only speak from that perspective mm-hmm. i do feel like the if we we're going to um sort of compare america to like a thank to to a family at thanksgiving dinner right like the i would say broadly speaking the the majority population's sort of tone is like, a, we don't want people fighting, so let's not talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I do feel like it is progress to say, hey, look, we sometimes you just got to argue. Sometimes you just got... The only way we're going to get through this is to argue about it. Yeah. Staying quiet about it. It's just not going to work anymore. Or I hope it's not going to work anymore. And, you know, but this is the uncomfortable... This is the part at the Thanksgiving dinner when you know when the kid from in college is yelling at grandpa and then the aunt is yelling at the parent of the kid saying how could you raise them to talk like to grandpa like that and it's all it's all out family war yeah but i'm you know i'm hoping the family survives i love that analogy because i'm i, I think you're right and i and i hope you're right but i'm I, I'm the one watching that, you know, watching my <laughs> yes. cousin and like flop sweating in the corner, just feeling so uncomfortable. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but you're totally right that that's the point is like we have to engage with that. Yes. And that's you can't you can't just, you know, put your head in the sand and and pretend it's not happening like that is that is in and of itself, um, you know, kind of cowardly is something I'm, I'm rec- trying to trying to, re- you know, wrestle with more and more is like, OK, yes. what what do I need to learn and what do I need to say and what do I need to make clear that, um, you know, is important. Because because otherwise these groups you know that like black you know individuals in particular in America are like nothing's going to change and this systematic right. oppression is going to keep happening so it's important to keep talking about it and keep keep working towards you know progress um, but okay so to let you get back to uh, to destroy here so it's been over two years since the book came out it, when you finish a work um, and obviously like I'm revisiting it because 
it's it's super topical and and you know definitely like having read a bunch of your work i wanted to come back to it when you finish something do you ever have moments where you think about like oh i'd like to like i kind of wish i had done this thing right i maybe if i had spun this or once you're done or you just kind of like okay brains on to the next thing i mean no like i mean the i would say the brain goes on to the next things because it has to right yeah. but um like i can tell you like the original plan for destroyer was uh um and when I say plan, I mean before what I was thinking about before I started talking with Boom and all this, uh, and we faced the realities of like this is six issues. Um, like I was going to turn the book while it was dealing with all this. It was also going to turn into the equivalent of like Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Mm. Uh, and by that I mean, so there's a scene somewhat early on. There are two agents who work for the secret nefarious organization. Uh, Adrian's uh, uh, Byron and Shelley. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, and they, uh, one of them gets thrown, um, gets thrown into a machine, uh, which is the machine that brought Akai back to life. And my original plan was, it was what was going to come out of that machine was that that agent was going to have been turned into essentially the bug from Kafka's Metamorphosis. <laughs> yeah. And then I was going to have and there's a point where you see this is means again this is down to like Easter eggs that mean nothing to anyone else, but um, you see Dr. Baker in the past when she meets uh, when she first meets Akai's father, she's reading uh, a werewolf in Paris, which is the first werewolf novel, hmm. and so I was going to have another person in there be sort of essentially transformed into a werewolf, yeah. and I was going to turn like the story if it had like expanded out into also basically just literary monster fighting. Like just battles all over the place of all these literary monsters that yeah, I yeah yeah the whole you know, monster universe uh, yes, shared universe right exactly it was going to be a uh, but may, much like the dark universe Universal's dark universe uh, movies the project died <laughs> uh, uh, pretty quickly yeah um, and it died largely because like the the editors at uh, Boom rightly so they said look this is your first time we got six issues. We don't have time for metamorphosis bug fighting Frankenstein's monster. I'm sorry. <laughs> and of course they were right. You know, it's a better book. It's, a it's hard book. to imagine that fitting in six years, yes, I will yes. say. <laughs> <laughs> but like when I think back on when I'm thinking, whenever I think back on Destroyer, um, I absolutely think about like what else I wanted to do with it. And then still sometimes think about, you know, the stories I would love to like still forming what would be the next step in this story? What would be Akai's story after this? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. Um, that's, a, that's a really so. interesting question to me too, because it's Akai is that character where, you know, we feel all this empathy, but we don't necessarily really know where he's yes. going next. Um, it right. is, it's not, it's not the same as the novel, but in that, in that sense of like, well, he swims away and he says he's going to do one thing, um, right. you know, but it's like, well, that really could go anywhere. Like that thread is very available, um, you know, for somebody to pull on it at some point in the future. Absolutely. Well, I, and that was that part was absolutely trying to echo uh, Mary Shelley's book, uh, even the point, even the idea that at the end, it seems like he's safe and happy. And I was kind of like, you don't know. Like, yeah. Yeah. What comes of that? You know, what comes of that? What he's been through, he's alone now or somewhat alone. Who knows? You know, like a, it was exciting to imagine that there was room for 
me to come back to it or who knows maybe somebody else says like hey i got an idea for this story could we do it and i'd be like that sounds amazing i'd love to see what you do with it mm-hmm. uh you know um so i definitely wanted that door to be open cool cool at, at the front of this you mentioned like maybe a movie one day have you had any conversations around like like licensing tv or, or movie type stuff or is that still just a, a possibility Yes, in fact, uh, um, like uh, there's a, a wonderful writer uh, who has a uh, what do they call it? A has a a, a pitch, a perspective, right? Yeah. And there's some really wonderful producers who've joined her, and uh, and I happen to know that they approached uh, uh, an actor who could uh, an actress rather who could, uh, in theory, actually cause people to make this movie. <laughs> Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. So I don't know, you know, like with all these things, um, that probably happens a thousand times a day and 999 of them never become anything. That's sure. just the reality of these things. But it is exciting to me to know that that is happening. And also in a weird way for it to not be me in charge of that. Like I want to see what this woman hmm. who's writing it. I want to see what she does with Josephine and with this world and with it all. And, yeah, it feels kind of scary but fun to get another take. That's cool. Yeah, I hope I hope something comes of it. I hope um, so. It yeah. is. I, I'm interested. It's cool to hear your your curiosity too about the story in someone else's hands. You know, this thing you've you've helped uh, bring into the world, but obviously, like you're like, yeah, I want to see what what somebody else can do with that. Like, let's yes. let's see their take. Um, it that's, also that's I exciting. Mean, and it also helps. Like, uh, I mean, I was it, fortunately I was allowed to talk with her first, and I knew her work. Uh, I know some of the work she's done and I really she's an excellent writer and so smart about it so you know there was also a way of saying like it's not like they just ran away and said uh, good luck finding out who's going to be involved that's good yeah they were very explicitly like you should talk to her see what you if you two get along if you jive well and I felt like if I had confidence in anyone to make this wonderful I would have confidence in her cool so yeah very cool all right, I'm, I'm excited to potentially hear more about that. I know, as you said, obviously there's a, a lot that stuff <laughs> needs to go through. yes, yes. <laughs> but maybe one day. Um, so one thing I, I thought was super fun after, uh, you know, well after I'd read this book was seeing that you are a comic book fan yourself. Um, what's uh, what's on your pull list these days? What uh, what are you excited to read? Well, I, I mean, uh, I'm reading, I'm thoroughly enjoying the new X-Men universe uh, awesome. uh so yep. i'm reading hickman's stuff uh, uh i'm friends with ben percy through our through the uh fiction world and so i'm loving yeah. x-force and marauders uh so i'm loving that uh i'm trying to think what else have i been really enjoying lately um the lolo woods it was uh, um joe hill has an imprint that came that's come out through dc like a horror imprint yeah uh and so uh, a writer named carmen maria machado has a had a series with them called the low low woods that i've been really loving and then joe hill had one uh one of my favorites was it was called i think a basket full of heads yep mm-hmm. and i'm really it's just pure pulpy goodness uh in the most fun sort of way um I hadn't so, even made that connection, but that uh, Hill House horror stuff sounds so up your alley. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, yeah. like, that was really... And, of course, along that same lines, uh, I uh, absolutely adore Immortal Hulk. Yes. Uh, oh, it's that's such a probably good no surprise, you know. So that's a couple things that, uh, like, re- more recently, even as I can't go in for my poll list, uh, I can have it mailed to me, because uh, only, only very recently was New York 
you know, could we go back into stores and stuff? Sure, right. Um, so, uh, so I was having to get them mailed to me, but those were some of the ones. Oh, and the new um, Tom King's uh, Adam Strange limited series. Mm-hmm. I think it's yep. about five issues in, and I'm enjoying that one quite a bit. Yeah, no, it's an interesting book as well. No, very cool, very good picks. And yeah, the uh, COVID has definitely changed the uh, the local comic shop experience. I still yeah. try to to make it around as much as I can, or even just you know get the get the books paid for. Because man, it's a the bizarre bizarre it. situation. Do you so where you are? Can you do they do like a, a curbside pickup? Or I was doing. Yeah, I was doing curbside for a while, and now they do. It, I'm in I'm in the Chicagoland area, so now we okay. can go in and uh, you know it's every you know wear a mask, keep your distance, but you can yes. actually go in and get the books. Oh, I've, so I go right to the nice. counter, and there's less there's less just kind of wandering, you know, and and flipping through comics, which is always part of the kind yes. of the joy of just being in the shop, but yes. you know just getting in, talking to the owner, that sort of thing, still there. So that's good. I'm happy the shop and the owner are still there. Right? I, I yeah, I'd like that to be the story of all the shops, but uh, you know. I know it's hit comic shops pretty hard. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a you know, it's a tough business even and before. Hit yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> even before this. Cool, cool. So, all right. So, in, on the novel side of things, um, what what do you have coming up next? What's the what's the work that you're like most excited about that you want people to check out? Um, well, let's see. Uh, the thing I'm working on now is going to come out sometime next year. Uh, late next year, hopefully, is uh, uh, I'm revising it now, uh, editing it, is a, a historical novel. It's set in 1915 in Montana, hmm. uh, and it's about uh, women homesteaders in Montana. Uh, historically speaking, people don't always realize that uh, women could homestead there legally, uh, white women and black women, uh, hmm. and eventually native women, but not Chinese women, because there was a lot of anti-Chinese uh, bias at the time hmm. um, but they could do it uh, they could homestead without a man co-signing or anything like that and I was super fascinated with the women who went out and did it alone and then of course they get out there and it turns out there's something else right out there it's gotta be there's <laughs> gotta, gotta be, it's gotta be that, that yes. Drop. yeah yes for sure cool and that's you said you're in the process of editing is that I'm editing for that. release uh, next year then it should be I mean the, the hope is still that it would be fall 2021. Okay. Um, potentially, you know, worst case scenario, things go late, America falls apart. Maybe it'll be spring 2022. Sure. Right. Yeah. No. There's a lot of there's a lot of really big variables. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right now. Yes. Totally understand. All right. Good deal. Um, is there anything else you want to plug before I before I let you go? Um, really, you know, I feel like I want to plug. Uh, Again, my buddy uh, Ben Percy's uh, X Force and Wolverine. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't need my help. They're doing great, but uh, he's a buddy. I love the books. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, I've been uh, I've been quite impressed by his work on on both X Force and Wolverine because yes. I I did not follow his. He was on Green Arrow before That's this, right. and I did not follow that super closely. Um, so I I didn't quite know what to expect. But I've been very high on those books. They're they're yeah. definitely some of my favorites in the X line. Um, and now I'm, I'm super excited to check out more of his work. I got a, you know, it's on the list. It's a big list, but I got, yeah, (laughs) it's a long list, but he's got a, 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 another, another one that I would plug maybe that is not one of the X titles that don't need any help is, uh, he has a, uh, a five issue series called year zero. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, people might enjoy. It's kind of apocalyptic, uh, zombie ish, but, uh, somehow still fresh. Cool, cool. And he I hasn't would... paid me for any of these <laughs> plugs. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you gotta text him after this. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell him what he owes you. <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Good deal. Well, Victor, this was a blast. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk. And uh, and yeah, thanks so much for joining. Hey, man, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you.